the world is very competitive and if you're not like hardcore um you die crypto will not die because in all parts of human societies there are people that benefit from crypto existing in web3 you have a lot of collaboration not that much competition something that we can appreciate i think the only blockchain that was good in marketing was solana if you own an nft whose ip you don't own don't really own anything you own part of a larger company who success you're betting on actually it depends good afternoon i want to start this conversation with a quote of peter thiel that i think is very interesting to ponder about in the current market conditions and that is competition is for losers how do you feel about this i feel great um <laughs> I think what he meant with it is um, competition is reducing the profits and reducing the likelihood to end up with a monopoly. And what you want to thrive for as a business or a business owner is to own a monopoly. You control the market, you decide what's the price, you can have huge margin, etc. So you should thrive for monopolies, not for like super competitive stuff. And everyone, especially like the extroverted people, they go for like the highly competitive markets, highly competitive opportunities, highly competitive universities, high, highly competitive like you know, companies. I would want to work for Google or like Goldman Sachs. And at the end of the day, if you would allocate as much talent and work and uh, brain power to something else, you would be super successful in this other thing. So. Um, it's an interesting idea. I would like to nuance it. Like, on the other hand, we live in a super competitive world with scarce resources. Um, everyone can put whatever they want in the word resources. Um, whether it's like, you know, beautiful women, oil, um, I don't know, like flats in nice neighborhoods, uh, you know, houses in Dubai, I don't know. Um, so we have scarce resources, a lot of competition. We still have a, a growing world population. Um, so the world is mean, the world is very competitive. And if you're not like hardcore, um, you die or you're completely irrelevant or OpenAI is going to take your job. Um, so you have to evolve always, you have to compete always. And competition is also what's push you to evolve and to be better. Um, so I would add this nuance. Then if we go to our main Center of interest, Web3, what does this sentence mean? Um, first, in Web3, you have a lot of collaboration, not that much competition, something that we can appreciate. That even like competing platforms, competing teams talk to each other and they both have in mind that um, mass adoption is the end goal for everyone. And, you know, so, they're, so the, the spirit is quite good. And um, the way to compete in Web3 is monopolistic competition. And I will explain this concept with a very basic example. I guess all of you know Louboutin as a shoe brand for women. You know, it's like the shoe for women with the red soil, like very like, you know, sexy. And, you know, Louboutins are competing in this overcrowded market of shoes for women. And you know, have this black shoe for women and you have a lot of black shoes with pretty much almost the same design. But just by adding an element of differentiation, they create their own monopoly within a crowded market. If you want to have, if you want to have the shoes with the red sole, you have to go to Louboutin. Okay. So, you know, it's, 
you create some element of differentiation in a crowded market uh, to try to be your own monopoly. It's what all the blockchains are trying to do, or these layer ones. It's like, okay, you know, well, we're not that different from Ethereum, but, you know, we have this feature, or we are faster, or we have a different programming language, or we have a different, like, consensus mechanism. And they all try to have this... Actually, it's quite... It's not well done at all. They all have this, like, very technical argument try to tell you that they are relevant. To try to tell to builders and marketers, so people who don't know much about technology, you know, you know, go, go, go build on my blockchain because we have this different consensus mechanism. They're like, wow, as a marketer, I'm super hyped. Thank you. Um, no, but no, it's really like this. I think the only blockchain that was good in marketing was Solana. Solana was just good in marketing. I don't have an opinion about like, you know, is it a good token, a good coin, a good blockchain from the technical part, but they were good in marketing. Right now they're in a difficult spot because of this like FTX collapse, but they knew how to sell the dream. So like, okay, so you know, we are the fastest ever, we're going to replace everyone. Uh, we could uh, they attract funding like as hell. And um, and then and they managed successfully to to get a significant size of the NFT market. No one else managed. So, so like, yeah, so how do you introduce some differentiation in your product to be your own monopoly? One way to create this differentiation is to fork. You take something that already works on a blockchain and you fork it on a different blockchain. Like you had like, you know, the infamous Olympus DAO uh, on the Ethereum blockchain, promising like, I don't know, like 100,000% APY. And <laughs> then, you know, it was forked on uh, Avalanche blockchain. That's called Wonderland. It was the same, like 100,000, whatever, APY. And so, but it's differentiated because it's not the same. It's, a, it's similar, but on a different blockchain. So a good way to launch a business in, this, in a competitive landscape, in the Web3 competitive landscape, is just to do the same thing on a different blockchain. I don't know who, I mean, actually, no one knows who are the founders of PancakeSwap, but PancakeSwap are competing against Uniswap. They're just going on a different blockchain and once they are on this blockchain, they have their own monopoly. So it's this typical example. Mm -hmm. It's the same product, same like UX. UI is a little bit different, but UX is the same. On a different blockchain, so it's different, differentiated. So they have their own monopoly, and they're printing billions. So this is how I would like think about this quote from Peter yeah. Thiel, competition is for losers. I think what Peter Thiel also mentions in the beginning of his speech for Stanford, Stanford graduate is that if you launch a business, you always want to aim for total market domination, which is a monopoly. So, for example, he makes a comparison of airlines and, or the airline industry and the search industry in 2013. And having 2% of the airline industry in 2013 was equal to having 90% of the search market capitalization in the search industry. So Google was a total market dominator while still being in a very small market competing or in comparison with an airline that only had 2%. And I think if we look at Web3 right now, there it is worth looking at dominating small markets in the hope of total market domination once these industries become large. Yeah. I mean, let's keep in mind that 
I think Binance was created like six years ago, five years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, they strive for total domination on the centralized exchange market. I mean, they don't have total domination, but they have a, a strong market shares. And you know, the market growed, mm-hmm. grew, sorry. And now uh, it's a multi tens of hundreds of billions of, of, of valuation. Yeah. And um, same thing for OpenSea. We're going to be the main marketplace for NFTs. What is an NFT? You know, like, um, <laughs> yeah, um, OpenSea is a great example. Yeah, yeah, it's the best. It's one of the best examples. Hey, let's let's be the platform for something no one cares about, but it's mm. going to be part of the future. And um, so, yeah, if you dominate your like segment of the market, if you de- de- dominate your topic in Web three, just with the growth with the exponential growth of crypto and Web3 that is coming in the, in the next years, I mean, you're sure you're doing a, a, a very good uh, bet as an entrepreneur or as a builder or as a marketer. I think it's a very interesting segue to say you go from capitalistic society and competition to look at non-competitive societies and non-capitalistic Um societies how do you see the statement competition is for losers play out in communistic or socialistic societies well i mean i think people are making a mistake about communism um socialism is more is too broad too vague it's like is france like a communist society uh so, so communist for sure not but it's from a socialist society. I don't know. Like, um, so I, I would just go for the communism, like the Soviet Union. I mean, it was a super competitive game. If you want to be a member of the party, if you want to be a member of the secret political police, to have like all the information about everyone, to have the power to arrest people. People in the communist bloc, they could, if you were a member of the party or in a position of power, you had access to different stores. You had access to anesthesia when you would go to the dentist. Common people, they had no anesthesia if they wanted to go to the dentist. Party members, they had. Uh, So people were competing. Uh, Just that in the communist society, you don't use the mechanism of the price and the accumulation of money as as a tool to to organize this competition, titles, roles uh, in the administration, in the bureaucracy are the way of you know, accumulating power, purchasing power, access to better goods and services. So I don't see any society that is not competitive. You could say like, it's a matter of scale. If you say that, let's say a family, the family cell is like a small society. Are people competing against each other? No. Family is communist by default. You know, the, the bigger is a, is a group of human, the less it can be like highly functioning while being communist. So like a small, like a family is communist, usually like we share everything, you know, whether you're working hard or not, like children are not working usually, you still get your share and you know, you can eat and you, you have like a bed and electricity. And the bigger the group of human and the less they have like strong bonds together, the more, if you want it to be functioning, you need to introduce competition 
Um, so competition and usually like uh, the mechanism of the prices is the best way to like organize competition uh, because prices give information, you know. Um, so communist societies are competitive within like, you know, I mean, first they were competing against the West. So you had a like, competition between two mothers. So it was a competition. And within this society, people were competing for position of power. It's just that now, like in the capitalist society, being in a position of power is called being a billionaire. Back in the days, it was like being part of the Politburo. But it's the same thing. I think a member of the Politburo had as much power and privilege as a billionaire in the West at the same time. Mm -hmm. So the larger a society gets, the harder it is to share things or yeah mm. so naturally or societies of scale or large societies drive innovation or drive competition because otherwise they wouldn't they wouldn't work in the first place um it's just that you like if you share everything naively in a big group of people you have the free rider effect if everything is shared, whether you work or not, you know, a big part of society will be like, okay, then I'm not going to do anything, mm -hmm. right? Um, in a family with like five people, you know, two parents, three children, if someone is not like helping with like, you know, the chores and tasks, you know, it will be, it will get noticed quite fast. Mm -hmm. And uh, because they have like love for each other or like a bond, you know, they won't do this. And um, so, yes, yeah, so bigger the group, the different are the rules to coordinate them and to find a proper like structure. And, uh, and the best performing um, yeah, group organization is still like the free market. Because the market, I mean, like because the prices in the free market are giving an information. Um, you know, if there is uh, too much supply of apples versus demand, price will go down. So producers know that, well, you know, it's maybe not worth to produce more. Or maybe you should produce something else. Um, if the price of something is going up, then probably there's not enough supply and a lot of demand. Then, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're like, well, you know, I'm going to start producing this good because it's interesting. Because you're producing this good, supply is increasing, price will go slowly down, and then you will reach, hopefully, an equilibrium. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting to look at how entrepreneurship was flourishing in, let's call it, communistic societies, and how we can make a bridge to what is currently happening in Web3. Yeah, that's a conversation we had privately before. Um, I read a book, it's called like The Oligarchs, from I think the author is David Hoffman. It was first published in 2001. And um, it's about like the beginning of so the first oligarchs. And keep in mind, it's 2001, so it's not like today's Russia. It's like, it's like when Putin just arrived. And uh, <clears throat> so they try to understand like, so who were these people, how they made their money, and one character is fascinating. His name is Mikhail Khodorkovsky. And he once was the richest guy in Russia. And they asked, and he started like being an entrepreneur during the Glasnost and Perestroika time. So it was under Gorbachev, still communism. But you know, they were like, okay, we're going to introduce this like micro form of liberalism, micro form of cooperative or small companies. So like for instance, students can create a a cooperative and have a little like you know lemonade store for instance or something like this that was the idea just to introduce a little bit of um, let's say macro enterprises proto like capitalism and of course like um, 
you know, like the students, they started to like build banks because, hey, it's, it's a business like another one. It's not saying, no one says that we cannot do a bank. Uh, some people do lemonade store, I do a bank. Or I'm creating like some construction company and I'm going to to build only like dachas. You know, dachas were like this kind of country house like uh, for like rich people, like, or uh, not rich, but like powerful people in the party. So I'm going to build dachas for these party members so then I can have some favors. And of course, they made their first money and they got quite fast, very wealthy, within, and powerful, within a communist society. And the author is asking Khodorkovsky, so, okay, now you're like one of the richest guys in Russia, one of the richest guys in the world, and you accumulate your money during communism. But very few people did it. Why were so few people going for like this like entrepreneurship way? And the answer is super interesting and it's super relevant for crypto. He said, because it was obvious that it was just a matter of time before the hardliner in the Communist Party will seize power, evict Gorbachev, stop this free market experiment, and send everyone who participate into this experiment into jail. It was obvious. Sooner or later, gone, finish. End of the party. You know, go home, finish. The police storming the house, end of the party. It was obvious. And it's the same thing that people say for, for crypto. Yeah, but you know, the government can ban crypto. And then it's going to be over, overnight. And it, it's a valid argument against crypto and against Web3. Oh, it can be like everything is forbidden. Everything is like an unregistered security. Everyone goes to jail. It's finished. It's a very valid argument. But I will go back to the parallel with Khodorkovsky. Why this like um, reaction didn't happen? Because... In every um, part of society, whether it's like in the party members, like workers, uh, secret police, whatever, in all the uh, layers of society, some people, not the whole layer, but some people in each layer saw a huge advantage in this. They could have a better service, a better good. They could enrich themselves. They could have access to people in position. Uh, Party members could have had dachas without waiting 20 years to get it. Everyone was getting money. Everyone was like somehow invested in the process. And so too many people in every single layer of society had interests to, to have this like continues. And for crypto, the same thing. Not all politicians have crypto and own crypto, but a lot of politicians own crypto. A lot of politicians are let's say, on the payroll of crypto companies, like as, a, you know, political donation and like this stuff. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of like, in every layer of society, some people like crypto. So in every single country, in every single layer of the society, some people likes crypto, works with crypto, needs crypto, and want crypto to be successful. And it's the same thing, like, it's the same parallel. So yeah, government could say it's forbidden, yeah. And in the same time, um, Khodorkovsky became like extremely rich during communism, the same way as crypto people are also super, super rich. Of course, we're in a bear market now, but you still have so many crypto billionaires that have a huge cloud. I mean, it was just a few months ago that uh, CZ from Binance was worth like 100 billion. He was what, in the top, what, top 10, top 20 richest people in the world from crypto in five years. And... 
so I, I see a kind of a parallel. Of course, like looking at history is not the it's not guaranteeing you to predict the future, but I think the parallel between like this communist society and um, crypto right now is quite interesting. But the, so the conclusion of the parallel is then crypto will not die because in all parts of human societies, there are people that benefit from crypto existing. Including in the circles of power. Mm -hmm. So a lot of banks have exposure to crypto. BlackRock has exposure to crypto. A lot of politicians have exposure to crypto. A lot of billionaires, family offices have exposures to crypto. Mm. So crypto itself cannot go down because if it goes down, it would mean that the people in power or powerful people and also other layers of society would have a disadvantage of that. Or they just won't let it happen. Mm. Like they will lobby the Congress they will um, vote against this. So, um, yeah. yeah. Or they will just go, you know, like, okay, it's forbidden. I don't care. I mean, they, I mean, drugs are forbidden. How successful was this? Yeah. And I mean, it's also a valid argument to say if large institutions try to ban Bitcoin, would that only strengthen the cause or validate the argument for Bitcoin? Yeah, I think it's an interesting, com very, very interesting comparison to look at Russia in the 80s and 90s and see how it's playing out now. And I, and this young gentleman or this gentleman is now, I think he didn't go back to Russia, right? He's in exile. Khodorkovsky? Yeah, Khodorkovsky yeah, tried to do politics. <laughs> Uh, in Russia after Yeltsin and um, Putin didn't like it so he was sent for like 10 or 15 years in jail and everything was taken away from him mm. didn't end very well. if we look at the current big crypto figures um, the big billionaires the big idols do you see in the next years that we will have some scapegoats being sent to prison simply for being the heads or the faces of this this revolution? Well, we already have one that might go to prison. Um, you know, it's also like um, something from Peter Thiel about the scapegoat. There's a very good article. It's like founder as a god, founder as a, as a victim, where you have like all this like... Um, uh, scapegoating mechanism. So uh, you, you launch something, and even like as a Web3 founder some, for some like NFT project, you have this thing like, uh, okay, you launch a project, you're the god, you know, like, you're the goat, you know, everyone's like, yeah, you know, you're the best. The whole community just sucking your dick and think, seeing how, how awesome you are. And then, of course, the project maybe sometimes fails and the charts goes down and the floor goes down, and then it's founder as a victim. You know, everyone hates you, you're responsible for everything. Of course, you know, you are some piece of shit, you stole money, whatever, or the possible accusation and defamation against you. So you have like this kind of like the rise, founders are God, then the collapse, founders are victim, which is scapegoating mechanism. So, you know, even within a small like Web3 project, NFT project, token, whatever, you already have this kind of like mechanism of like scapegoating. Um, will like big figures go to, to jail? Um, I mean, it's hard to predict. I mean, there is... It's, a, it's another paradox of crypto is it's super hard to like really commit fraud in crypto and get away with it 
because everything's there. And at the same time, crypto is attracting so many crooks. That's it. <laughs> like, why? Um, so, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to predict if a big figure will go to, will go to jail or like what can possibly. I mean, SBF going to jail is going is already like kind of a form of black swan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For anyone listening that is wondering how long SBF is going to go to jail, there's a beautiful video of Martin Crayley where he where he <laughs> looks at the jail time and counts out points of what's the likelihood and how long is gonna he's going to get. Small spoiler: Martin Crayley thinks he's going to get life. So let's see, let's see about that. Um, but we started today with competitions for losers. Then we looked at capitalistic societies with a lot of competition and exploiting smaller markets that might become billion dollar market capitalizations later down the road. If we mm-hmm. look at, because we talked about Russia, where um, you as an individual in a society, you, let's just say you're equal to other people so the house that you own is not yours i think um or the land or the forest are owned by the state and we had a very interesting conversation with a dear guest uh rafael gautier that is funding an nft lending or web3 game lending platform and we had a conversation about entrepreneurship and how owning assets in a society or increases commitment and entrepreneurship for uh, contributors. How do you feel about that um, looking at competitive environments, maybe socialistic and also Web3? How does owning an asset improve the well-being or the innovation, the speed of a game of a society? Yeah, it was the episode with uh, Raphael Gauthier uh, from Oasis. Not Oasis the blockchain, Oasis uh, NFT platform, and uh, yeah, I think the most important part, maybe quite overlooked part of the interview was private property. And his point, that was genius, is uh, tokenization is the introduction of private property in everything. Everything can be tokenized, so everything can become private property. All right, and then from now on, you have this um, this idea that. Or this reality that all the well-functioning societies in the world, or more like all the non-well-functioning societies in the world, have just one thing in common. It's not religion, it's not political system, it's not ethnicity, it's not, I don't know, like um, a climate. No. All the non-functioning societies in the world, they have in common that private property is not secured. If you don't own your stuff, you're not going to take care of your stuff. You're not going to invest to improve your stuff, rather it's your house, your company, whatever. You're not going to innovate. You're not going to uh, uh, get some patent on your, your on your inventions. You're not going to create a company. You're not going to buy real estate. You're not going to invest in companies. You're not, you just don't do anything because if everything can be taken away from you that fast, then you just don't do it. So all the non-functioning societies in the world have in common that property is not secured. And so in this digital age, with the tokenization, everything can be turned into a property. And this is changing the nature of things. I will, again, go back to history and use an analogy. Um, In 1862, a law was introduced in the United States. It was called the Homestead Act. 
And the Homestead Act stated the following. If you put a fence around a field, and I think if you cultivate this field, I don't know if it's like, for like a year, two years, three years, whatever. If you cultivate this field, then this field is yours. So they took empty space that was owned by, let's say, nobody, if you don't take into account native people. So it was owned by nobody, according to them. And they introduced, they introduced um, private property. And so from then, you're like, okay, so, you know, I'm going to go to the West. Uh, you know, I'm going to take this field. And then I'm going to maybe encourage my other, like, fellow farmers to uh, put some money together to have uh, some sheriff. And then, you know, if someone can create a saloon, I would definitely be a customer of the saloon because, you know, after a, a big day of labor, you know, I would like to have a drink. And then if someone can create a bank, it would be quite cool because I can get a credit and, you know, buy another field and blah, blah, blah. So the introduction of private property created a new economic reality. You even have like Nobel Prize winners, economists, who said that half of the growth uh, in the um, 19th century in the United States was driven just by private property, not by railroads, not by heavy industry, not by, you know, development of modern banking. No, no, just private property. To turn something empty into private property is creating a new economic reality where people invest, innovate, compound, collaborate, exchange, blah, blah. And um, so right now we have like so many things in the world that are, especially like in the digital world, that are not private property. Your data are not private property. Your, uh, so your character in a video game is not private property. Uh, your uh, everything, pretty much everything online is not private property. And so if we turn all of this into private property, then a whole new economic reality uh, can emerge. And that's a super interesting part. So, you know, you, you start with this idea of like, well, you know, tokenization is private property, yes, and, and then you see that actually there's a whole like possibility of economic growth and development that will happen in the coming months or years. Simply because users are more committed and more incentivized to what they're creating. Yeah. What they're using. Mm. Yeah. So me as a user of Facebook would be more interested to use Facebook because I own what I contribute. I own my data. I own who I am on that platform. Yeah. And I could potentially and also sell it, right? And you, if you own the data, then you should own the, a part of the revenue driven from the data. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's uh, the same way as on Oasis, you can you know, put your NFTs. Some players will use the NFTs on play to earns, make money, and you will share the money with them. You know, you bring your identity, your datas uh, to a social network. They're going to monetize it for you. And, you know, they should share part of the profit with you. Mm. I think it's a very interesting thing to look at profile picture NFTs. Because back in the day, mm -hmm. giving IP to your now worthless profile picture NFTs was a huge thing. Because users said, yeah, I'm going to make my video game or I'm going to make my sweater or this movie I'm going to make with this 3D ape that I'm buying now. And eventually nobody used it um, because now all of them are worthless. But users felt more connected and more committed to what they own. Because if you own an NFT whose IP you don't own, 
you don't really own anything. You own part of a larger company who success you're betting on. Actually, it depends. Um, it really depends. Like, what kind of IP do you own? Like, um, there's this kind of license thing in NFTs. Um, and there's this huge like debate about like the license in NFT. Uh, do you own or not the right, the commercial right, on the NFT if you own it? And I think like, I think with the board apes you own it. I think with you know nouns that WTF. Um, you own it too. So you own like the commercial right mm. of like over this this picture, yeah. literally. If you want to sell t-shirts or like create a movie about it. Mm. Yeah. So and huge. you see how that board ape community is driven by creators using it, by people making sweaters out of it, by people being committed to individual contribution. So Let's say we look at video games and people have been playing thousands and thousands of hours of World of Warcraft without getting a penny of it. How do you see that is going to change from both the player activity and in-game entrepreneurship with tokenization of their assets? For me, it would be hard to answer this specifically because I'm not really playing video games. Um, so I never was a, I mean, I think you could, you could, you could either, yeah. we're not like really video game players. So it, it's hard to, it's hard really to be relevant on this topic. I think we, we had some good guests um, for, for this thing. Um, but we, we could make a comparison to say, you look at Russia in the 70s, nobody know, nobody really owns anything. Again, you know, I'm not a political expert, it's just, mm -hmm. it's just, Put the stereotype over you don't know you don't really own anything and then slowly and surely measures are being put in place where you own your land your house and you see the effects mm -hmm. on the economy same thing in the united states if that happened in a real world economies and real world countries do you see very similar developments happening in online games online world web 3 yeah how you know what form what kind of like incentives what kind of mechanism what kind of which blockchain which technology this i cannot answer precisely mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but yes for me it's quite obvious i'm very curious and again i'm not a video game player but what kind of forms of entrepreneurship are going to be then driven inside of these games because right now you as a player can monetize you being a good player by being a very funny streamer, by being a very good streamer, by becoming a competitive player, or by working for a guild or working together with other people. But once you own the assets, once you own the tokens, once you can really thrive and drive inside of that, um, I think that something cool is going to happen. I talked with a friend of mine about this too, and mm -hmm. he raised an interesting argument about if you would be Blizzard or owner of World of Warcraft, is it really in your interest that people inside of the game start owning assets? Yes, if you can get some network effect. Mm -hmm. If they start you know, building maps, uh, crafting tools, uh, if you have this kind of stock market within the exchange place within the game, whereas uh, the platform is taking a small commission, yeah. 
You know, it's like moving from, um, it's like, you know, moving from like a closed game into like an operating system where people can create apps. You know, was it more valuable for Apple to have a phone where they control everything and they decide and they code themselves everything? Mm-hmm. Or was it more valuable to have this programmable, um, um, like software where like people can bring the innovation to it because Apple alone wouldn't have created like, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, Uber, whatever. They couldn't think about everything. But you know, if anyone can just bring some, some ideas within guidelines, then yeah. They're going to crush it. I read a very and, interesting... And, and, if you, oh, sorry. and if you don't do it, someone else will do it. Mm. Mm. So there's this game theory element. If you don't do it, someone will do it and someone will attract developers, talents, streamers, innovators, creators, and you don't want the competition to do it. So you have this game theory stuff. Like, so if you don't do it, someone else will do it. So yeah. it's better if it's you. If you do look, I think it's a very relevant topic to talk about Apple and App- Apple Store policies, to look at how close your ecosystem is and how sometimes random the rules are for submitting apps. And we've both experienced that in the past, how difficult or annoying it is to list apps there. And I read an article about from Paul Graham. I think it was around 2007, where he said that Apple just doesn't get developers. Apple doesn't understand software. Apple doesn't understand how stupid it is the way that they structure their Apple Store. But still, they've become this massively, massively valuable company. So the question here for my side is how important is it really? If they can pull it off without listening to the common consensus, how what do you think Blizzard is going to do about that then? We go back to the innovators dilemma that we already discussed a lot on this on this podcast is you know if you don't do it, maybe someone else will do from the industry or some new player will grow so fast. Mm-hmm. I mean, Border Apps just, re- like Yuga Labs just recruited the former COO of Blizzard, no? Yeah. I think it just happened like this week. So, you know, um, if you don't do it, some pure player of the Web3 will do it and they're going to eat you alive. So, um, yeah. I think it's like really, like, it's, it must be super, super hard right now for like, these big like companies because... Regulation is super uncertain. I mean, they don't want to risk their careers. They don't want to risk the whole company, which is what happened with Facebook, uh, on this bet. That is super uncertain. But on the other hand, if they don't do it, Web3 company will purchase, uh, will poach their best talents, will pay them better, will grow faster. And then you are in a situation where you're just like the underdog now. Mm. So it must not be super nice right now. Yeah. Um, I think the same thing for banks, you know, like, okay, no, we're in a bear market, so it's less sexy and like these bankers are like what like risk averse, but you know, you have like this open finance where you can just print like a lot of money. If you're smart, if you're like innovative, you can really build stuff super fast and just become super rich, uh, while contributing to something good. And, um, banks are about control, about regulations. If you don't participate, you might become obsolete. But if you participate too hard, you might get into super into big troubles with the regulators. So you might get suicided. 
<lacht> ich meine, jetzt zu Reddit. Ja. Ja, indeed. So we, we started there with how tokenization or individuals owning parts of a society drives innovation. And I want to move here into another very relevant topic. And I'm going to start with a quote from Andrew Tate that said, oh. the internet was built by geeks and hustlers got rich using it. AI was built by geeks and hustlers are going to get rich using it. Right now, AI is the most trending topic on all platforms. Mm -hmm. And I personally, I think I've only scratched the surface of what it means to really understand something that I think is very hard to understand or maybe impossible to understand. But how do you see, um, especially in a Web3 place where, you know, people are like, oh, I'm going to lose my job. Um, am I still valuable as a copywriter? Is AI going to build my website? How can hustlers use AI to be on the forefront of this? I spent the last like 10 days like playing with this like open AI stuff. And if you ask the relevant question, if you know how to ask the relevant questions, it is, it's insane. Uh, like I used to be a copywriter. I used to be like an author. And I really see that because I'm a copywriter and an author, I know what is good content. So I know how to ask for good content to this like software. And the product of it is just, it's just better than humans. You know, in my previous company, we used to have like, I think like something like 25 people just for content, writing ebooks, writing newsletters, writing sales pages, doing all this stuff. I mean, chat GPT can do it. With the right comment, it can do it. Um, I even actually started to code something over it with with, uh, with a friend of mine because like I have this like online lesson that I used to sell like about copywriting and the French speaking market. And I'm like, but let, let just just look at the rules we're giving to our students. If we apply the same rule over this and over this software, can we get the same result? Also, on can we feed this software with all the sales pages, newsletters, ebooks, whatever that we produced in the past? Yes, we can. He says, can we replace everyone? Probably, yes, within a matter of weeks. Um, so it's super strong. Um, what's super interesting from like a hustle and like entrepreneurship perspective is you don't have to you know, build your own AI. You have to build like sexy use cases, sexy tools, user-friendly, funny, useful, whatever products over it. And this is maybe what entertainment meant. Like, okay, so you have like this super, super smart, like dork, as he said, um, who are just like coding stuff. And <laughs> and then you have like people who have a better understanding of like marketing and product and like just humans that are, that are going to like uh, uh, create like utilities over it. And um, actually for the blockchain, it's exactly the same thing. Like, you know, you have like this people like coding these super complicated blockchains with like developers and stuff. And they have this conversation in this podcast where I don't understand anything or I mean, not anything, but like it's like super technical. And then you have people like us, you know, how does the blockchain really works? Well, you know, I don't care. You know, like the same way, like how does like email technologies works and autoresponder works? I don't care. Mm. I'm just using it to create like use cases, businesses, 
product. And it's the same thing, like, you know, all we did, like, in crypto this last two years, uh, either together or each one of us, like, in our own with different teams, was this. I mean, none of my fucking team except the developer understands the blockchain. We don't care. We see the potential, we see the value, we see, like, the, the ideas, the principle, and we, like, we, we like it, and we can, we're just building stuff over it. And so, you know, Web3 entrepreneurship or Web3 hustle, AI hustle is going to be the same logic. You build like use cases, utilities, sexy product over it. And you don't have to understand how it works. That's the beauty of it. Mm -hmm. So it's and, going um, to massively reduce entry barriers while giving the benefit to the smartest and the fastest. I would say the more fastest, like the fastest, I get it. Um, Smartest, I don't know because it's, I don't know, I don't really know what it means. Um, but I would say it's the most business oriented, the most um, user oriented people, yes. Yeah, that's very good. Since we're already talking about speed here, from a funding perspective, we're right now in a market condition, it's quite slow, it's a bit boring. Um, speed was massively important in the bull market from just a general startup perspective to say you want to be fast, 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 kill competition, get adoption, talk to users. How important is speed in the current market conditions when funding a project or funding, not funding? Well, I don't see any reason to slow down. Hmm. What are the benefits of slowing down? I don't see any benefit in slowing down. Like the rhythm of innovation and the rhythm of valuation are two different things. You know, valuation is for like speculators, investors, gamblers. Innovation is for like entrepreneurs, um, workers. Um, so, you know, the rhythm, the speed, the pace of, uh, of innovation is what we focus on. We don't really care about the valuation right now. So, you know, there's no reason to slow down. Mm. That's a really good one. I love what you said there. Can you say that again? Innovation. Like the pace, like, like, like the, I think the exact quote, and I don't remember the exact quote, is like there's a, there's a story of innovation, there's a story of valuation, or like our financial valuation um, is, is par are parallel stories, uh, but are not the same stories. And innovation doesn't care about valuation. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And eventually, innovation is going to drive valuation. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So there are no benefits to slowing down. There are only benefits to innovate because valuation is going to follow. I mean, the only thing that might affect like innovation is, you know, the price of your token crashed, part of your team is leaving, you don't have enough funding to, uh, to pay people. And this can affect your like your operations, and at the end of the day, maybe your innovations. But um, but that's just capitalism regulation. Yeah, I remember from an interview I once heard with the Airbnb founder, and he said that they started out as Airbnb, right? And it was a long journey, and eventually they got into Y Combinator, and Paul Graham told them that you guys are cockroaches. And cockroaches are the only ones that survive in market conditions like this. <laughs> because back then it was also a bear market. And 
then he called his mom and he said hey mom i just got i just got called a cockroach that's the nicest thing anybody told me in the last half year <laughs> and i think if we look at current market conditions and projects that make it they're kind of cockroaches in the sense of being what is a cockroach is able to live in a nuclear environment is able to live on very limited resources is able to multiply very fast and is able to live in the most hideous environments so yeah every day i'm not telling myself be a cockroach be a cockroach <laughs> um but the idea of living cost efficient and fast and cheap i think is a very important thing that is going to decide of who's going to win who's going to lose who's going to survive I think it, it makes sense also for us because I don't know for you, but I never worked or I never raised funds for my company. Mm. I never raised in a, in a, in a VC-backed company or business angels-backed company. I never raised any money. So this whole idea of like, hey, we have free money. So, you know, we have free money that we can like spend. We can like be lazy. We can like overspend. We can like get these fancy offices. Um, I never had this. I never was in a situation where, I, where I'm like, okay, you know, I can just burn the money. It's someone else's money. Like this... So I think the same thing for you, no? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So like, we're not like this kind of like cool, we never were part of these cool startups that have too much money and know that they don't have money anymore. They're like, all right, so, you know, how is the real life? We need to turn some profit now. We're always like profit driven, cost efficient. And um, this is why, I mean, for me, it's not changing anything. Mm. I mean, like, okay, I, I cannot like just make millions every month by like working on products that are like just like raising money and pumping some stuff and like, okay, so, you know, my incomes are lower, but my, my net worth is also lower because like oh, Bitcoin is down, but it's not changing my day-to-day -day life. Yeah. That reminds me of a quote that you recently tweeted and that was, your goal is to last and not to shine. I mean... I think the quote I studied from someone is like, it's a friend of mine who was in, on an interview, a very serious one. And he had to talk about like the, the tech space. He just raised maybe 20 million, something like this. And he had to talk about the tech space. And he said like, you know, most entrepreneurs, most startups you see, like the stars in the sky, they are still shining. But actually they have been dead for like ages. They're already dead. You just don't know it. It's still shining. I know it's dead. And um, instead of this, like, um, so yeah, the goal is not to shine. It's not to be like the stars in the sky that are already dead. It's just to last. Mm. And eventually shine. And, I think it's a cool analogy yeah. because you're looking at the sky, right? And most of the, the yeah. skies or the stars and the suns you see is dead. are dead. <laughs> dead. The sky is a symmetry. Yeah. You just don't know it, yeah. but the sky is a symmetry. <laughs> Um, <laughs> same with Twitter accounts with more than a hundred thousand followers. You're like you're all dead. Like <laughs> nobody's there. Yeah, yeah. And two, and two or three retweets. Um, I mean, for me, there is in an entrepreneurship journey. I mean, almost every day you have a decision to make between: do I want to maximize profit, or do I want to maximize prestige? A social recognition and too often people go for social recognition i want to be cool i want to be famous i want forbes to write about me and i'm not interested by this i want the profit 
because if you pursue the prestige, usually at the end, you have no money and no prestige. If you pursue the money, the profit, at the end of the day, you still get the prestige. Mm. How do you put innovation in that? If you say, I'm only going to build what makes me short-term profit, aren't you missing out on the bigger things that might take you two, three years to build, which would not read, reap immediate benefits? Well, that's just like some uh, delayed profit. Mm. You know, like, it's a difference between like, you know, I'm going to start some Web3 company because it's so fancy and it's so cool. I want to be like in this space. I want to be like, you know, I'm fresh out of business school and I'm a complete idiot and, uh, you know, I want to be cool. Um, and I don't think either about innovation. I mean, focusing on the prestige is, I mean, it's not about innovation either. But at least if you have the prest, if, if you have the profit, you can, you have the ammunition, you have the dry powder to fund your innovation if you want to. Yeah. So be focused on profit. Don't be cool. And re, <laughs> I mean, we, we had the conversation with Raphael, right? And he said that he has a friend that has a 15 million ARR business that sells MP3 players. It was MP3 or like more like just like CDs stuff. Yeah. CDs. CD audio players. CD players. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Okay. Um, I think we covered a lot of stuff already. We talked about competition. Mm -hmm. Um, innovation, tokenization, and we then made a very interesting segue into AI and now into being a cockroach. What is, what is a, what is a note that we can end this conversation on Tugan? Hmm. It's probably one of the last conversations, 23rd of December, that we have with us together. What's one thing that you're very excited about looking in the next year? Hmm. Good question. I mean, right now, you know, I'm at the end of the year, so I'm like just doing like all the paperwork. So I'm not really like having this, this uh, strong uh, positive visualization <laughs> of what's coming next. Um, I mean, in my case, like I'm working as an advisor on on, on three projects in Web3 uh, that I will not name because, you know, I have this kind of NDA approach and I don't want this podcast to be about shilling a project or anything. And yeah, we, we will release the product and uh, in a bear market. And of course, it's going to be tough, but it's something I'm quite excited about, just releasing the product, getting real. Um, maybe the note for the end would be like... Um, you have to get real. You have to face reality. You have to face the market. I think the mistake would be like, okay, we're in the market, so, you know, I can wait. You know, this speed thing you, you mentioned earlier. Um, I think be fast. Get hit by reality. Uh, don't delay it. Face your market. Launch your project. Launch your product. Build your community. And don't use bear market as an excuse for, like, procrastination. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very good. Very good. 23rd of December. Don't, don't wait. Be a cockroach. <laughs> yeah, and be fast and learn quick. That's good. Um, 
then thank you for the conversation everybody that that tuned in and see you in the next one